Well, this morning I'm going to do something that I haven't done in a while. For those of you who've been around a while, you've seen me do this before in Ephesians and other places where there will be a longer section of, of the scriptures that kind of fits together or has a theme. And what I like to do is, is cover that big theme, and then in the next weeks we'll go back into that passage, that longer passage, and break it down into the smaller pieces that, that we can examine more closely. So, it occurred to me that it would be good to do this for Hebrews chapter 2. In some ways, I could have done it for <laughs> Hebrews chapters 1 and 2 together. Um, but I want to look at the whole chapter. There's a, a theme there that weaves in and out, I think. And then in the next weeks, we can, Lord willing, go in and look at those in, in closer detail. So, we'll look at the whole of Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. It's... Uh, a little bit lengthy, 18 verses, so let me get right to it and read that for us. As we come before the Word of God, let's prepare ourselves to hear it as well. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified elsewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies And those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. May he write it upon our hearts here this morning. Indeed, may it bear fruit in our lives. Let me pray for us as we come before the word this morning. Our great God and Father, we come again before you and ask you to bless our, our time of worship, our service here this morning, now in particular as we come before your word. Again, we ask you to reveal yourself in it and through it, to speak to us, and we pray that the word will have the effect that you have promised that it would have, that it would go out and not return to you void, but instead accomplish everything you purpose for it, and that it would be successful in the things for which you send it. We do ask that you would pour out your Spirit upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you would have us see and hear from your Word. Plant it deep within us. Let it bear fruit in our lives so that it might guide and direct our our, our steps as a lamp and a light to our feet. Father, we ask all of this again in Christ's precious, holy, and wonderful name. Amen. What makes something great? What makes someone great? Well, likely, it's some significant accomplishment or or victory or success of some kind. Well, who gets to decide who is great? Or what thing is great? Do you get to do it yourself? Muhammad Ali did. I am the greatest, he said, and he said it often. And he attained that nickname for himself. You can go back through history and see certain kings and queens and emperors and monarchs who are known as the Great. Alexander the Great. The conqueror of the world. The bringer of Greek civilization to the far corners of the world. Alfred the Great. The only British monarch to be called the Great. Why? Because he only ruled a small little tiny portion of what's now England, a small county in the southwest. What makes him great? Well, he stopped the conquering Danes from taking over the whole island and preserved Anglo-Saxon England for future generations, gaining back some territory. Also preserving Christianity from the pagan Danes. Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, leaders of Russia, followed one another closely, made great strides in bringing Russia, backward, not too sophisticated Russia, into modern Europe. Or go back further, Charlemagne. Charlemagne, his name means Charles the Great. Part of the dynasty that helped keep the Moors, the Muslims, out of Western Europe and recognized by that, for that by the church and chosen to be the first new Roman emperor of the West. The Roman Empire in the East had lasted and transformed itself into the Byzantine Empire, but in the West, Rome was defeated. It was gone. The Muslims were gaining ground, and here the family of Charlemagne helped drive them out of Europe, stop them and drive them out of Europe, and In recognition of that, the Pope made him emperor of the new Roman West. 
those and others are called the great. Now it's interesting, if you talk to historians, look up online or in some history resource, who they consider to be the great kings and queens, it's almost none of those guys. <laughs> it's other people. They look for historical significance or, or other things, whereas the people themselves are looking for that patriotic leader who made our nation wonderful and great again. We do the same thing with U.S. presidents. The ones that the people like are very often different than the ones that the historians and political experts like. Nevertheless, these are rulers who are remembered for what they did and who they were. It's almost unthinkable that anyone would ever forget who Alexander the Great is, or Catherine the Great, or other of these great leaders. Almost unthinkable that they would ever be forgotten. And what the writer to the Hebrews does here in chapter 2 is he calls upon us to think about something that's great and says, pay attention, don't forget about it, don't neglect it. And this great thing is what he calls such a great salvation. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention. And how can we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We can look at kings and queens, we can look at events, scientific advancements, historical advancements and others and call them great, remember them as great. But what the writer here is doing is calling upon us to remember salvation itself as great. Don't forget it. Pay attention. What is it, though, that makes salvation so great? What's so great about salvation? What's so great about what Christ has done and what he offers? That's the question that I want to examine that I think Hebrews 2 gives us a lot of interesting clues and answers about. What is this great salvation and what makes it so great? Then in the weeks to come again, dive into some of these ideas a little bit more deeply. Well, what makes salvation great? Here are the things I want us to look at this morning. Six things, six main ideas that I found. One actually goes back into chapter one. What makes salvation great, first of all, is that it was announced by God through his very own son. This is a salvation that has a source like no other offer of salvation. The second thing It's great because the consequences of ignoring it or paying attention to it are so much greater than the consequences of any other salvation that's offered. So the second thing is it's great because of the greater consequences that come with paying attention or not to it. It's great because it comes with a great witness, a great confirmation beyond any other witnesses or confirmation. Fourth thing is it's great because it comes with a great kingdom, like no other kingdom. It's great because it unites God and man, not just in a a religious, ceremonial, worshipful relationship, but you may have picked up on this as I read through it. It's a great salvation because it unites God and man as a family. 
That's incredible. And then the fifth reason it's great is because it's accomplished by God actually becoming man himself. No other salvation can offer anything remotely like that. So it's great because it's announced by God through his Son. Secondly, because of the consequences attached to it. Third, because of the witness that confirms it. Fourth, because of the kingdom that it establishes. Fifth, because now God and man are the same family. And sixth, because it's accomplished by God actually becoming man himself. Let's work through these six things quickly here this morning and think about them a little bit. So the author says salvation is great and he shows us how great it is by the context of chapters 1 and 2. So we have to go back into chapter 1 a little bit to be reminded of the great messenger that brings this salvation to us. A messenger greater than any angels or any prophets or any messengers that have come before. And the author makes these various points that we looked at, quoting from these seven Old Testament texts. God never called any of the angels, My son, today I have begotten you. God never said about any of the angels, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God never said to any of the angels, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God never said to any of the angels, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They perish, but you remain. You are the same. Your years will have no end. God never said to any of the angels, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God never said any of these things to any of the angels, but he said them to his Son. And therefore the Son is a greater messenger, a greater spokesman, a greater bringer of the word of salvation than any other messenger or prophet that has ever come before. And so therefore, the salvation that he offers, the salvation that he accomplished for his people, is a great salvation. Well, the second thing is, is this salvation, this great salvation, has great consequences. So now as we move into chapter 2, the author makes the argument in the first four verses that the consequences of ignoring this salvation, the salvation accomplished by the Son, are greater than the consequences of ignoring the message that had been brought by angels, the laws, the promises, the curses, the blessings of the old covenant. Look at chapter 2, or verse 2 in the first part of verse 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If this was true of the old covenant, and it's validated, it's it's proven reliable. God's word to the, to the old people of Israel, the old covenant people of Israel, was a reliable word. The law was a reliable law. The blessings, the curses, the punishments, the rewards were reliable. If that was reliable, and they received a just retribution for their disobedience, 
what he's saying is how much more will it be reliable? How much more will it be just if we ignore such a great salvation? How in the world are we going to escape if they didn't escape? If they were punished, why would we expect not to be punished? The old law, the old covenant, required just consequences and penalties and remedies for every single sin by sacrifice, by restitution, by offering. Go back and read Deuteronomy or or Leviticus and see the the truth of this. Go back and read the history of, of Israel, the warnings from the prophets, and then recall the consequence that they suffered for turning away from God's law. The northern ten tribes were wiped out in essence absorbed into the nation of Assyria when they were conquered. And then within a couple centuries, the southern kingdom of Judah, sent into exile by God himself for failing to keep his covenant, for rebelling against God. Those are dire consequences for the people of God. Again, what the author is saying is, if God did this to the old covenant people, who had a a message that was less valuable, less worthy than ours, what more is he going to do to us if we neglect the message delivered by the Son? And, and we know what those consequences are, don't we? It's heaven or hell. It's one or the other. We don't like to talk about hell, but it's a reality. It's either eternity in hell suffering the anger and wrath of God and his punishment forever, (laughs) or going to heaven, eternity with God, the new heavens, the new earth, life as it was meant to be, without sin and evil and its consequences in the world, having full communion with God himself. Hell is not 70 years of exile from which there's a promise of return. It's eternity, it's permanent. It's forever. There's greater consequences for ignoring this message than the other message. And that makes it a greater salvation. Don't neglect this salvation, says the author. Also in verses 1 to 4, he makes another point that this great salvation has a greater testimony, a greater witness. There's a legal idea going on here And we know that in the Old Testament law, what made a testimony valid? What made a fact of a case valid? Two, at least two witnesses. Two or three witnesses. And you have a valid verdict, a valid uh, just case being presented. And he's saying that the message of salvation here has better witnesses, and therefore has better testimony, and therefore is true and reliable. The old message proved to be reliable. If we have better witnesses, how much more reliable is this witness? How much more true? How much more valid? The implication of this is you better repent and believe and get the benefits and rewards of this or in refusing to do so and rebelling against God suffer the consequences and punishment of it. The greater witness that the author presents is, first, the Lord Jesus himself. There in the middle of verse 3 or so, it was declared at first by the Lord. 
God in the flesh himself declared this new message of salvation. Is there a better witness? He goes on. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Those who were there, those who were in person, the apostles, including ultimately Paul himself. This is also why we don't think the author here is Paul. Paul heard the message directly from Christ. This author says it was attested to us by those people. But there's a third witness as well. God himself bore witness, confirming the witness of those who heard by signs, by wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God the Son, God the Father, and those who heard the message directly from the Son make up a trio of witnesses that surpasses any witness in any court, in any trial, anywhere ever on the face of this earth. And so their message is a greater message. Greater witness equals a greater message equals a greater salvation. So this is why the author says, pay close attention to this. Don't neglect such a great salvation with such a great witness. But he goes on. Verses 5 to 9 talk about many things. We'll get to those, Lord willing, later. But for this purpose, focusing on the salvation, what he talks about is a great kingdom that comes with this great salvation. Again, the author compares the Son to angels, noting that God didn't subject anything to the angels, especially the world to come, about which he is speaking. What he's saying is part of the, an essential part of this great salvation is that world to come. We're not saved just to go to heaven. We're not saved just to, to be better people on this earth. There is a world coming which Christ is going to reign over. And he didn't give that to angels. God did not subject that world to come to angels. It's not going to be ruled by angels. Again, I talked a little bit last week about this. Jewish eschatological end times idea that Michael the archangel would rule the new kingdom through the priestly messiah and through the kingly messiah. This author is refuting that. No angel is going to have the world to come subject to him. Only the son. And it's not a small kingdom either. It's not just the promised land in Israel. It's not a strip of land in the Middle East. It includes everything. Nothing is outside of it. He left nothing outside his control, it says in verse 8. Not one thing. And so we're reminded of Abraham Kuyper again. There's not one thing, not one speck of anything that Christ looks at in all of creation and doesn't say, mine. Everything is his. Everything is in subjection to him. And even more, what makes that kingdom great is how his rule is achieved through suffering and death. We'll get more into that and why that's true later. It's a greater kingdom achieved through greater means by a greater son. It includes everything. And what the author is saying is that what Jesus did in suffering and dying and defeating sin and death and, and the devil himself 
so that resurrection life can be given to those who repent and believe in him is a greater work than any king who's ever existed or will exist in the history of the world. Maybe you built a great civilization like Alexander the Great. Good job. Christ defeated death. Maybe you conquered vast territories. Well done. But you didn't defeat sin and death and the devil. Saved your country from extinction. Well done. But you didn't make it possible for human beings to live forever, rising from death itself. Those other great kings, oh, their their stories are fascinating. I love to read them. But does it compare to this story in this book? It's not even close. Our king (laughs) defeated death. In fact, if you read enough of the the history of those great kings, they end up being kind of echoes of one another. This guy did that, this guy did that. Oh, I've seen that before, I've seen that before. Some of them despair over that. I haven't done anything that anybody else hasn't done. Can't say that about Jesus Christ. Jesus the Great. It's a greater kingdom. That means it's a greater salvation. So pay attention. Do not neglect such a great salvation. The other thing that the author speaks of that makes it great in verses 10 to 13, now he talks about the relationship that's established between God and man, a relationship relationship that's possible because of the Son's work. Those saved by Jesus become part of the family of God himself. And so we can hear echoes of that kind of folksy song that we learned back in, what was it, the 70s and 80s? I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. That's true. And those are sentiments we should sing and celebrate with great gladness. This is the way we are talked about in these verses from 10 to 13. We are called sons who are brought to glory in verse 10. In verse 11, Jesus himself says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. The name of the Lord. He's going to tell of the name of God to his brothers. He's talking about you his brothers and sisters. And he's not ashamed to do it. Again in, <coughs> excuse me, again in verse 13, we're described as the children of God. The author quotes from the Old Testament, claiming that Christ is speaking. I and the children God has given me. We're together in this as one new family. Family means something to many of us. We look at great families, the Roosevelts, the Kennedys, the Rothschilds, others throughout history, the Medicis, heirs to the great thrones of Europe and the world. Great families all, and yet none of them, not a single one of them, is as great as being part of the family of God. Because God is greater than any other king or any other family, and his family is therefore greater as well. Christians are sons and daughters of the Most High God. Believers in Jesus are his brothers and his sisters, and he even goes so far in John fifteen fifteen 
to call us his friends. We emphasize in, in our Reformed heritage the sovereignty of God, his majesty, his glory, and that's right. It helps us, it helps us keep things right in our theology. And sometimes we forget, Jesus really is my friend. Jesus really is my brother. God really is my father. It's interesting how the great kings of, throughout history have tried to bolster their power and their claim for uh, the throne by claiming also to be descended from the gods. <clears throat> Whether Pharaoh, the Greek, or Roman kings, Chinese and Japanese emperors descended from the gods themselves, <clears throat> the various pagan rulers of Europe, very human claims to, to justify their, <clears throat> their taking of the throne. But against these, it's so interesting to me, <clears throat> against these claims, which are made by humans, God himself makes a counterclaim. That's my family. Those are my children. We don't make that claim. He makes that claim about us. How great is that? How awesome is that? As father, I call them my children. As son, I call them my brothers. Now that's a great family to be a part of. A divine family. And it points again to a greater salvation. So again, pay attention. This is the author's point. Pay attention to this great salvation. Do not neglect it. And then finally, in verses 14 to 18, the author goes on to say more about the family of God, but noting that the important piece that makes that happen is that God became man in the Son, in Jesus Christ. He talks about it as, Jesus uh, partook, likewise, he himself likewise partook of the same things as us, in verse 14. That he was made like us in every respect, in verse 17. So that when he offers himself as a sacrifice for his brothers, it really has the effect of making propitiation for our sins, of turning away the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. God, he also makes the argument, the author, that God became man to help man. He didn't do this. A fascinating statement in verse 16. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Offspring of Abraham by faith, we learn from Galatians. He did not do this for angels. There's fallen angels. Why didn't he go to rescue them? Don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. What it does tell us is God became man for us. Wow. Now other religions take this as a, a sign of weakness, something that in some way diminishes the glory of God, his power, his divinity, that God would become man. But the reality is just the opposite. J.I. Packer makes a great point in his chapter on the Incarnation, in his book Knowing God, if you accept the truth and the reality of the Incarnation, everything else makes sense. Because if God can become man, he can do anything. If God can become man, he can do anything. And so when Jews or Muslims or other people claim that our God is a lesser God because he, came, he became man and even died as a, as a cursed 
man upon a cross and say that that means your religion is less than ours what we ought to be saying is no it means our religion is greater than yours our god can become man your god can't that is great that is power that's an incredible incredible work and he did it to save his people his brothers his friends he did it because, as we're going to see in, in the book as we go through it, animal sacrifices cannot atone for human sin. So God had to become a man so that human sin could be, could be dealt with. The wrath of God could be appeased. Nothing else could do it, and no one else could do it. The Son did it, and the Son had to do it. A Savior who can become man to save man as a greater Savior. A work of salvation that deals completely with sin and its consequences, once and for all, as a greater salvation. So again, what does the author say to us? Pay attention to this. Do not neglect it. Do not neglect such a great salvation. What he's saying, in effect, is seek the Son, and seek Him now, while He still may be found. Hear his voice when he calls. He is the great messenger that the Father has sent. And the consequences for ignoring this, this great salvation, are great. Eternal punishment, experiencing the full fury of God because of your sinful rebellion against him. But the rewards are also great. The rewards for paying attention to such a great salvation are great and wonderful. Eternal life, death, and Satan utterly defeated. Sin removed, nailed to the cross with Christ. Dealt with completely. Gone, remembered no more. Think about those things. Is that not reason to pay attention? (laughs) Is that not reason as the author is going to continue in chapter 3, to consider Jesus? That's what this book is about. Consider Jesus, the salvation that he offers, greater than anyone, greater than anything, and then live like it. Do not neglect the salvation that he has accomplished for us and that he offers freely to everyone who will call upon his name. Let me pray for us. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for our elder brother, Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Lord, also our friend, who for us and for our salvation did indeed come down from heaven, live the life that we cannot live, live the life that we refuse to live, obeying your law perfectly, but then willingly giving himself up as a sacrifice, a substitute for us to pay for our sin, offering his righteousness to us in exchange so that we might stand before you holy and blameless, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's a great work. It's a great message. It's a great kingdom. It's a great Savior. 
Indeed, as we hear from the Apostle Paul, it is a great love with which you have loved us. And we are humbled and we are grateful. Help us to study this, to consider it, to pay attention to it, and to learn more about it as we go through this wonderful letter to the church that you have given to us in the book of Hebrews. Bless our study and bless our application of the things that we learn from it. We ask it in Christ's holy, wonderful, precious, and glorious name. Amen.